You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Jack Wemberg, who, with his colleagues at the Centre for Evaluating Clinical Sciences, published the Dartmouth Atlas of Healthcare, which kick-started the movement to look at variation. He joins us in the studio to discuss his work and what the UK can learn from the US. We just recently released an um, atlas on end-of-life care for patients with cancer, and that has been widely received throughout the country. We've stimulated a great debate on the intensity of end-of-life care. Also this week, what do you buy a mammal for Christmas? I think I did a total of 26 journeys on the carbon bike and 30 on the steel bicycle. But before all that, I'm joined by Berta Swissman, who's here with this week's news. Hi, Berta. Hi, Duncan. So what have you got for us this week? Well, the first news story that caught my eye was all over the British press earlier this week, and uh, it was a systematic review of randomised controlled trials reported in The Lancet, which found that daily low-dose aspirin reduces the risk of dying from some cancers. Sure. I mean, that has been everywhere, as you say. Aspirin's an old drug, so have we known about this kind of protective effect in the past? Um, Yes, this is just the latest in a long line of publications on the subject, and obviously it's a systematic review, so it's a a pooled analysis of data from a number of randomised trials. Sure. If you're a GP and your patients come in to ask you, what's the advice that's been given? Well, it says that taking 75 milligrams of aspirin every day for five years or more reduces the risk of dying from the range of common cancers. And I think the age range in question is 45 to 65. If you start taking the drug then, apparently the protective effect sets on rather quickly and lasts for years after you stop taking it. Very interesting. However, um, of course, because aspirin is associated with an increased risk of gastrointestinal bleeds, not everyone should automatically take it. Um, people do actually have to go and talk, talk this through with their GPs in order to assess their individual risk. Thanks for that. So what else have you got for us? The second news story that caught my attention was about inequalities in child health. Um, a new UNICEF report has shown that um, this is lowest in the Netherlands. What it says is Italy, the US, Greece and the UK are letting their most vulnerable and disadvantaged children fall further behind other children in other wealthy countries, including in terms of health. Um, And the report ranks 24 countries in the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development in terms of children's equality in health, education and material well-being. And uh, the United States rests at the bottom of the league table overall, but it's closely followed by Italy, Greece and the UK. So, you know, to come near the bottom of 24 countries, I think, is um, quite a shocking rating for a North European economy. Yes, absolutely. So is the problem getting worse? Across the OECD as a whole, government outlays and social protection policies to offset inequality have reduced um, child poverty rates by more than 40%. So overall, there has been an improvement. It's just those countries at the bottom that um, are struggling. And a failure to deal with these inequalities um, 
ultimately results in higher costs for societies in the form of greater strain on health and hospital services, remedial schooling, and welfare and social protection programs. So it's almost as if saving at the wrong end will incur greater cost at the end anyway. And with the economic downturn, I suppose that's something we really have to keep an eye on. Yes. So from that, we've got something a little bit more lighthearted, which is all of our Christmas stuff that started to go up online. So so what's that, Berta? Um, they're all freely available at no cost on bmj.com. And they include such gems as a research paper on the impact of red hair on having surgery mm-hmm. or the impact of the weight of your bike on your commuting times. And we've got the author of that uh, joining us later on. And uh, other gems include an exploration into what killed Mozart, who may have had 140 diseases and 39 mental disorders. Poor man. Um, and a consultation with Santa's GP. Great. I will look forward to reading them. Thanks for joining us, Berta. Thanks, Duncan. And all those stories are available online on bmj.com. And to keep up with the latest news, you can find that on our Twitter feed at bmj underscore latest. Now, Fiona Godley, editor-in-chief of the BMJ, talks to Jack Wenberg. Thank you, Duncan. I'm here with uh, Dr. Jack Wenberg, guru of healthcare variation. Um, We've been talking about his work over the last 40 years, highlighting variations in healthcare and what we can learn in the UK from what's been going on in the US. Reading some of the information about you on the web, there's obviously been a big backlash in relation to the latest set of reforms in healthcare in the US, um, and not least um, you being referred to as the Joseph Mengele of um, uh-huh. healthcare, which refers to the idea of people have got that there's a sort of death panel that might be in right. place. Um, when one talks about cutting cost um, and not reducing the quality of healthcare, Obviously, there's a large group in America or a vocal group in America who believes this is um, uh, very much to be opposed. What's your sense of the um, prospect for real change in America in light of this backlash? The backlash that you're referring to uh, isn't a very serious problem uh, in the sense that there's not a constituency behind it that's very strong. Uh, that can't be overcome by a, a simple database, <clears throat> simple data, and also by by people's reactions to it. And I think probably one of the best examples of, of why this is so is we just recently released a um, atlas on end-of-life care for patients with cancer. And that has been widely received throughout the country. We've stimulated a great debate on the intensity of end-of-life care. And this whole uh, debate has has just not emerged, the death panel concept. It emerged, the death panel uh, concept emerged in the height of the rhetoric over the passing of the Obama health care plan. And uh, uh, I don't think that's a big big issue. Uh, If you ask me about impediments to, to reform in the United States, the much more entrenched ones are the economic incentives associated with the fee for service. The, uh, so very, at the at the individual physician level, really. Yeah, and also at, at the level of of, uh, of systems management too, because anything that uh, that threatens to put limits on healthcare in the United States is going to 
uh, is going to gorge somebody's uh, ox. And is there a sense in which uh, that healthcare costs, as they are continuing to rise, I gather something like $2 trillion now, uh, that there will be a tipping point uh, at which point opponents will be forced to admit that there, there is a need for change? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, at the macroeconomic level, uh, our, his, our system is a disaster. And uh, it, the, the, the economic health of, the, of our country depends on figuring out how to set limits in healthcare because you cannot continually transfer GDP into healthcare, particularly since it's so completely unproductive at the margin. We're not getting any benefits that we can see. Uh, uh, so uh, that this has got to be stopped, and everybody knows it, but they circle around it and say, well, you go first. And, <laughs> and so the, the lobbying is powerful, and the uh, weapons you know, go all the way from death panels to sophisticated arguments about economic growth. You can't stop the growth now since healthcare is the only industry in the United States which has grown significantly over the last decade. We in the UK, health policymakers, medical journals, um, clinicians, find ourselves looking to America. I mean, although everyone recognizes the problems in American healthcare, it, there is still a lot of excellent clinical and um, health policy activity in America, obviously. What do you think the UK can most positively learn from America? Um, I think that, that since we have been wrestling with... Um, outcomes research and the interpretation of practice variations. And we've had such a strong quality movement through Don Berwick and, and, and others. Uh, I think you can learn something about how to improve the quality of care. Um, what you can't learn from us is how uh, to contain the capacity <laughs> and perhaps uh, how to have a decent uh, conversation. I mean, I, I'm impressed with the quality of debate that goes on in the UK around these issues. To me, the the biggest problem that you face, and I'm not sure I have the perspective to actually say this, is but uh, the the chasm between primary care and specialty care is uh, so dysfunctional, and it's dysfunctional for two reasons. First of all, in dealing with unwarranted variations of the preference-sensitive kind, you have to have a, an exchange between primary care and specialty care that's, that's f framed in terms of patient preferences. And that means that the knowledge of the patient and the understanding of the patient, uh, which generally rests with the GPs, uh, needs to bridge that so that the referral to the specialist is based primarily on well-understood preferences that have been worked on by the primary physician, I would hope, so that the diagnosis of preferences now becomes an important part of primary care. And in the case of chronic illness, uh, this is a problem of longitudinal management, managing over time. So it has to be a teamwork. It just does. You mentioned the problem of the fracture between primary and secondary care in the mm -hmm. UK, which is kind of ironic in a way. Extremely. <laughs> um, do you get a sense from what you know of the latest reforms in the UK around primary care commissioning, GP-led commissioning, that that is going to help or, or make things worse? You know, I... I, I don't know. I, I've, you know. I've read the white paper with great interest, particularly since shared decision-making got such a prominent role in it. Uh, but I don't know, and I've looked at all the boxes in the chart, and it looks very dynamic and, and, and feedback-oriented, uh, but I, I still don't know what's going to happen. And, and at, 
how the PCTs are going to basically dissolve and the uh, GP consortia are going to reinvent that. There is a worry among some GPs that this will compromise them in the eyes of their patients, that they will, instead of being seen as the patient's advocate, they will then be the people with the purse right. strings who are actually making commercial cost decisions rather than clinical decisions. Do you see that as a problem, or do you think that might actually help to um, control variation in cost? I, I think it, if, if there were uh, bona fide solutions to the unwarranted variation problem that could be accepted and implemented, then I think it contributed to it. Uh, just as, as and, and the great advantage in the United States of our capitated systems is that uh, the specialists and the primary care physicians uh, work together to, to basically create the, 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 the protocols by which patients are managed over time. Are you talking in systems like a, a, an integrated system like Kaiser and Exactly, or, or group health in, in Seattle, uh, or the Mayo Clinic, except the Mayo Clinic and Dartmouth-Hitchcock Clinic are our group practices, but they but they have a mix of fee-for-service and, and uh, capitation, and it just becomes impossible to, to integrate when you have different paymasters. So, so um, uh, but I think the, 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 the concept that the, the GPs will be responsible for the entire budget uh, and the integration of it is pretty uh, scary, uh, but it, it could work, and I, I, I just don't know. It, but I think that's a, a valid concern for sure. Jack, you've recently written a book on tracking medicine. Can you tell us how that takes the debate forward? What I tried to do in the book was essentially to tell the story of practice variations, um, the story of Vermont work, the story on prostate disease, the Dartmouth Atlas work, uh, right up to the present day, uh, and to, to distill some of the of the of the, of the uh, inferences and implications of our work, uh, and discuss it finally in the context of of, of the new health reform bill, um, which just came out just as we finished the book, and we had to make an epilogue on to really get that discussed. But but I think the the major lessons that that I've drawn uh, from these studies is that uh, we have essentially in the states at least four big tasks that we have to do. One is that we've we've got to to move from disorganized chaotic systems in quotes uh, to the organized practice best practice models that we have seen in the United States, and I think the group health strategies, the large group practices, integrated practices of both vertically and longitudinally in the sense of integrating the different uh, uh, sectors of care as well as as the different specialists uh, and primary care physicians really is important. Uh, it's important because, first of all, it's accountable or can become accountable for a population. Uh, secondly, uh, it is well-received uh, and organized to take accept capitation, which I think eventually is going to happen. And probably even more important uh, from the point of view of science of healthcare delivery, these organizations can follow patients over time and, and measure outcomes uh, and relate outcomes to inputs, and they can conduct clinical trials within, within the, that uh, practice pattern. 
So, so I think that the, the, these organizations are terribly important. The second sort of general inference here is that we, we simply need to understand that biomedical science is incomplete without the science of healthcare delivery. We have to understand how treatments work, when they work, when they don't work. We have to understand patient preferences, how to communicate information to patients. And we have to turn everyday practice into a learning lab so we actually can, can, can gain information from all these uncontrolled experiments that are going on right now. So that would be point number two. Um, point number uh, three, uh, we need to move towards shared decision-making uh, as the process of communicating information and choice to patients and at the same time move towards the, uh, the ethic of informed patient choice as the, as the dominant uh, strategy that we should be uh, employing for uh, situations where patient preferences really matter. And then finally, the, and maybe the biggest task in the United States is that all of these microsystem and organizational systems, things I've just mentioned, take time. They're unpredictable. We don't know how long they'll, 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 they'll take, uh, you know, decades. And in view of that, we have to understand how to limit capacity in, in, in the overall investment in healthcare, And that's maybe the toughest problem for us in the United States. And when you come back and view the, the UK situation, in many ways that's the easiest because you already are limiting the overall growth of the, of the sector very effectively. You've got the other problems to deal with, the organizational questions, the shared decision-making questions. And I think getting uh, the science of healthcare delivery uh, organized in terms of the way we used to call outcomes research, so you're you're not dependent entirely on clinical trials for formulating a, a scientific response to practice variations. Jack Wenberg, thank you very You're much welcome. for talking to me. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. That was a segment from a longer interview, which will be appearing in full in the new year. Now, mammals are on the increase. Not the furry, milk-producing kind, but the kind in day-glow cycling shorts. We're talking middle-aged men in lycra. You may have seen them whizzing around town or down a country lane on their top-of-the-range bikes. But if this Christmas you're asked to buy them a new bike, a paper online this week on bmj.com might help you make an evidence-based present decision. To discuss this paper, I'm joined by Jeremy Groves, a consultant in anaesthesia and intensive care at Chestfield Royal Hospital. So Jeremy, you're a keen cyclist. But what made you want to do this comparison looking at cycle weight and commuting time? Well, the reason I decided to do the comparison was because I had purchased a new bicycle and had got into the swing of cycling to and from home to the hospital. And one day I managed to do the commute as fast as I think I'd ever done it, which was 43 minutes. A couple of days after that, I got a, I got a puncture. So I got back on my old steel bicycle. And the very next day, I managed to do the commute in almost exactly the same time as I'd managed on the carbon bicycle. And that really raised a question in my mind. I'd spent a lot of money on a new bicycle. And, um, and here was uh, an indication that, in fact, the money wasn't actually saving me any time at all. So you decided to do this comparison and you, were, you measured your commuting times over, over the course of a period of time. How did you actually do your research? First of all, 
I, I thought any um, any study ought to be randomised, and I know the um, the randomisation process of tossing a coin is perhaps not the best one to do, <laughs> but uh, but it struck me as being uh, it struck me as being easiest. So um, I randomly allocated myself to choose either the carbon bicycle or the steel bicycle by the toss of a um, one pound coin. I think I did a total of twenty six journeys on the carbon bike and thirty on the steel um, bicycle, and um, I looked at the difference between the average times and, uh, and and found that there was no difference. None at all? None at all. In fact, what surprised me was if you looked at the average times, they were actually slightly longer for the, um, for the carbon bicycle. <laughs> exactly why that is, is, uh, is, is sort of open to debate. Sure. Well, you said your carbon bike's about 30% lighter. So it's not the weight that's the, the rate-limiting factor in your commute. What do you think it could be? First of all, I suspect that in, in the right hands and in the right conditions, um, there's no question that a high-performance bicycle is going to outperform a heavier, slightly older bicycle. But I think on a, um, on a commute, there are a whole host of factors that influence how fast you're actually going to go. Um, for one thing, you have traffic, uh, the um, necessity of stopping at, uh, stopping at red lights, yep. and above all, I think the weather conditions make a, uh, have a significant impact on, on how fast you're actually uh, going to go. Like all research, obviously, there's limitations to this, and I can imagine someone who's really keen to get one of these uh, carbon bikes could find a way around it. I suppose the ultimate test, really, though, is what bike do you ride after doing everything? I generally, in dry weather, would choose the carbon bicycle. Um, I think partly because I've got it and I feel, to a certain extent, I ought to ride it. <laughs> I would say that the favourite one is the, um, is the steel bicycle that I, used, uh, that I used in the study. And now that I know that it's not actually going to get me to work any slower than my new carbon bike, then... Why not, uh, why not ride it? It's also a slightly more comfortable ride. I mean, this is a bit of, of quite silly research, as is the Christmas BMD tradition. But there's, there's a fairly important point, really, about using evidence to make the decision and not having your head turned by something shiny and new. One of the things about um, human behaviour is that we're intrinsically tra- attracted to something that's, uh, that's new and shiny and that we feel it ought to be better. Um, this bicycle is 30% lighter than your old bicycle. It's going to be easier to cycle up hills. It's going to be better. Um, but we don't know that unless we look at the evidence. And I think there's a parallel there with the way that we respond to both pharmaceuticals and medical devices. I, I, I like to feel that this study, which I enjoy doing, makes that point in um, perhaps a slightly, uh, a slightly different way. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jeremy. Yeah, no problem. It's a pleasure. So that was the first of this year's Christmas stories. We'll be back next week with many more, plus some Christmas videos to see you through the festive period. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.